Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud Base Mayhem. Got a great show for you today with my friend Stefan Bernard, uh, former Air Force fighter pilot in Germany, and has just recently, in the last couple of years, gotten super into comps. And as of last check, is already in the top 15 in the world. So has taken how he learned how to fly fighter jets into the world of paragliding. And that you're going to find it super valuable and informative and inspiring. Before we get to that, just want to again mention that these bonus shows that we're putting out, we just put out another one last week that was the third installment of the Red Bull X Alps interviews that I did. So I interviewed the athletes right after the race. This third one has Maxine Pinot and Willie Cannell, Marco Hergetic, Herga Hergetic. I never know how to say his last name, even though we're good friends, but and others, including myself. And I think you're going to find these really fun. If you're having trouble getting these bonus episodes, reach out to me. Just go through the website, send me an email. You do not have to be a financial supporter of the show. We, again, we don't put anything behind a paywall. That's how it's set up. But if you just let me know that you can't support the show financially, totally fine. And I will set you up with a lifetime account. And also, if you've had any contact with us in any way over the years, whether that be just an email or you're on our newsletter, or you support us through Patreon or the website, or just a one-time donation through PayPal or Revolut or Venmo or however you've supported us in the past, you should be set up with an account. So most of those I have to do manually, and certainly I miss some. So if I've missed you, let me know. And if you can't support us, let me know. I'll set you up. Hopefully sometime in the future, you can. So... Yeah, and that once you've gone through that process, those bonus episodes will show up in your feed just like our normal shows do. So you just have to subscribe using whatever podcast app you use, and it'll come into your feed just like our normal ones will. If you're having any trouble with that, please let me know, and we'll straighten you out. Uh, yeah, this show, Stefan. I first met Stefan a few years ago down in Columbia. He and I had a pretty good race at the British Open, and... This year, he's been on a great run. He won the Colombian Open, did great again at the British uh, Open down in Rolandio. He has he was top 30 in the Super Final, I think, last year. Has won tasks on the PwC. He's just become really good, really fast, and he credits a lot of that to the training he got in the Air Force. And so we learn a little bit about his history, how he was pretty uninspired by his first few lessons and kind of the real push on passive safety rather than making pilots safe and just the differences that he saw really coming up through the very professional commercial side of aviation and also uh, the military side and what he was being taught and also kind of the peer group and some of the early disappointments and then now uh, where, where he's come to now with his own flying and he's been able to take a lot of those lessons that he learned in the Air Force directly to flying and and I think you're going to find pretty valuable. Stefan is also a guide and instructor for Escape XC, Jockey Sanderson's company. And he's been doing some pretty fun stuff in opposite sides of the world, taking people flying in cool areas. So we learned about some of that. So please enjoy this great talk with my friend, Stefan Bernard. Yeah, come on a little because I want to see your face. 
Stefan, what a joy to get you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. And I, I guess we all have a little bit more time these days <laughs> for this kind yeah. of thing. But I understand I you guys. Yeah. yeah, I understand you guys are getting back to the air as, as we are here, which is which is exciting. We'll see how that all works out. But yeah. I, I thought a, a cool place for us to start. You, you've got a long history in aviation, not just free flight, but you've got you know a whole bunch of years in the Air Force, and then now you're flying for MedJet, which is kind of cool. And that we'll talk about all that. But I understand you got into flying, specifically paragliding, before your Air Force days, and then you drifted away from it for a long time. So I thought we'd go back to the very beginning. You know, kind of how yeah. you learned, and and it sounded like it wasn't super encouraging. <laughs> yeah i mean where do i start it's, it's quite difficult i mean as you imagine as a professional pilot i was always fascinated by flying as a little kid i built model airplanes and uh, the village i grew up we had little slopes so every three hour i didn't fly i was dreaming of flying so uh actually uh, my first contact with like paragliding hang gliding was when i just started the air force i mean finally after school i applied for all this um got into the Air Force training and just before my flight training would have started, uh, I was in officer school near Munich and a friend of mine decided, let's go and learn hang gliding. That was the first contact I had. Mm. So uh, actually some quite interesting days. It was in the, uh, when was that? The mid end 80s. <laughs> ah, way back. And, uh, yeah, they're way back. But it's um, the thing was, uh, if we would have made it, they would have sent us right away to the States for one to two years to our training. So we, we went to that course, long story short, and it was fascinating. I mean, flying like a bird, we had these little hills uh, running down with the seat harness initially, and just doing the first hops on hang gliders, not doing big flights. And then it came to a sudden stop, <laughs> because... Uh, I had a little motorbike and my friend on the back on uh, one of these days going for uh, for training again. Basically, I crashed us and he broke his wrist and that was basically the end of this course. <laughs> ah. So it's Guido. Uh, I'm sorry. Still after all this years, uh, very good friend of mine. But <laughs> so he, he forgave you, I guess. Career. Yeah, uh, maybe it's for the better. I don't know if people have survived that. In these right. Days. Right. Um, Anyways, that was my first contact, and uh, well, I made it through the Air Force training, got sent to pilot training. I always said, when I come back to Germany, I definitely will want to continue that because uh, um, it was like a dream. I mean, always watching my model airplanes and now sitting yourself in one of these flying machines and uh, feeling this weightless feeling leaving the ground and just soaring. It was great, amazing. Mm. So, uh, well. Uh, after the states uh, came back and was stationed in way northern germany no mountains no nothing and then the uh, intense world of being a fighter fighter started so time was limited and guess what i bought a surfboard uh, <laughs> because the coast was 10 k away <laughs> and um, hang gliding uh, basically uh, drifted away till uh, in the 90s, I guess it was. My wife in these times, we had two small kids. I was figuring out doing something together in this environment, right? I, I think you have a little daughter right now, yeah. right? And uh, as you know, having a job, even a fighter pilot is a job. Um, wife, kids, we build a house, time is limited. And I thought, well, paragliding, there was something. A friend of mine mentioned that. 
uh, that might be something you can do where I can combine everything. You, know, you put it in the trunk, you go on family vacations, you hike up somewhere, uh, do a little bit flying. So we uh, both, my wife and I, started that course with this goal on the horizon. And for me then, being basically getting into that simple flying again, um, climb mountains, fascinating by it, because I also climbed in these days and mountains in general really fascinated me. So it looked really promising. Mm. So off we go. I went, signed up for a school in Germany. And uh, well, to be honest, um, in the 90s, I wasn't too much impressed by the way it was approached, uh, at least in the flight school I was uh, training in. Because uh, with the background I had from the Air Force, which is well, you can imagine really professional training. Um, you have syllabi, you have goals, you have approaches, and uh, it's really amazing how they get you to a level within a year, which you would not expect by just a good training setup. Mm. And um, I expected something similar from the paragliding world, not in this complexity, but uh, well, you go there, they have a school syllabus, we have to do 40 flights, and there's an academic program, so the whole framework is there. But basically, uh, more or less, I just uh, did this 40 flights, and uh, at the end, I made my um, my test, my, what do you say, yeah, yeah, my check right, and here you go, and you have a license, and I didn't have the feeling that... I really know a lot about flying. <laughs> so they handed you a license and you're like, I'm not sure I can do it. It's kind of like when you, when, yeah. you have a, when you have a baby at the hospital and they let you go home and you're like, wait a minute, where, where's yeah. the operating manual for this thing? Exactly. So. <laughs> the, here you go and you say, and where's the manual? There's a manual? There's no manual. <laughs> wait, I'm just supposed to figure this out? Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in these days, I, how old I was, around about 30 or something like this. And I mean, I was... Full hotshot fighter pilot in these days, flying MiG-29s, Russian airplane in Germany. And so, so I was really full on. Uh, and then I come to this uh, paragliding world and I thought, that's not possible. We Flying was invented 100 years ago and uh, these guys here try everything from scratch again, right? Even mm. sailplane pilots, uh, they a lot of good lessons learned in the last 60, 70, 80 years. But uh, it was a bit strange. And uh, to be honest... Um, well, I drift a little bit negative to this world because A, I completely expect different people there, like uh, something like I found in the mountains. Normally you have, um, how do you say, there's uh, low profile guys. Uh, you get judged by what you climb. There's not, uh, how can you say that? Yeah, yeah. In these yeah. days. There's a lot of humility. I, I, I call them, it might sound a bit harsh. and I don't want to want to really uh, blame people but a little bit of a wannabe world right it's like mm. uh, it had the label of extreme sport and you saw a lot of people showing up basically it's like well there's an easy access to extreme sports <laughs> um, right. but not a lot of people were extreme and the way they were treated in that flight training i think was not for the benefits it's more that psychological game and that what I didn't like. And even I, I mean, you didn't get a lot of answers. You had so many questions. And uh, I remember days, it's perfect weather. You look at the sky, you have an aviation background, and the guy says, oh, guys, last flight, two o'clock, uh, the phone comes through. And you look at phone, fuck, we have no wind here, stable high. With, 
can't be. And another friend comes through and so so we get all these questions. Every takeover was standing up there and it's like, is this safe now? Uh, you didn't just get the tools you needed to make a good decision. And I think that's the main thing for pilots, training to make own good decisions. Mm. And long after that, uh, I just realized that it more or less was his time uh, to stop to have a beer in the beer garden at four, two o'clock and then... <laughs> The phone was coming every day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for me, that's a little example how this world was in these days. And I, I think I don't know too much. I think it uh, developed dramatically. They have really good people now in the DHV, and they have good programs. And the instructors are trained differently. And uh, I hear a lot of good feedback from some schools here uh, nowadays. But in these days, um, if I look at myself, I struggled with that a long time because. Mm. For example, in the Air Force, you're the same. You're a young guy. You step out and say, hey, welcome. Uh, you made selection. Here's the class. They give you the training, the academics, all you need to know. And then they take you out flying every day. And uh, in the beginning, you need, I think this is very, very important. No matter what you do or fly, you need a calibration of your mind. Is this safe? Is it unsafe? Is it on the line? Because as a beginner, you don't have a clue. You don't know if these turbulences are too strong or too soft. Is it handlebar or not, unless you try. But in in our game of paragliding, uh, well, uh, you don't want to try everything yourself the first time alone up in the air because you cannot say stop. Um, and I had a lot of learning myself to do it, to find out what are limits, where, where is it safe or where is it unsafe. And... Um, Again, maybe an Air Force example, they teach you aerobatics right from the beginning. And the first flights are always, they show you the red line. This is a stall form. Uh, they spin you and it's like, and they show you how to get out. And uh, they, from the, these are the first flights before you do even the normal training, just to show you where the boundary is to calibrate your mind that you develop a feeling, well, I think I have to watch out round. Uh, this sound, this speed, this feeling on the stick. Oh, I think we're approaching the limit. I have to be careful now. And this is what I really missed in paragliding in the beginning. And uh, and uh, it's a different concept. It's it's if you look at it. And uh, a couple of years later, when I started again, it was a big topic for me. I talked to a lot of people. Now I just let it go. I think that uh, sometimes we do a little bit of a wrong approach because at least here in Germany, I think we stress too much the passive safety. Um, I know the background. It is a approach to flying. We make the environment safe and the glider safe and everything safe so the people don't get hurt. But I believe in a little bit more different approach. I think um, you have to make the pilot safe. It's, it's surprising this has come up quite a bit lately you know alex roby was the first one to really voice that concern about you know if you if you really stress the pilot safety you take away the autonomy of the pilot and the, the yeah. desire to you know you're aviating <laughs> in yeah. a slow yeah, glider exactly. that can collapse you got to take responsibility for this there's only so much we could put on passive safety and if we if we offload it if we offload the responsibility to passive safety, we never really become autonomous exactly. pilots. Manu really brought that up. I, I like 
I, I don't, I'm not familiar with it, but it sounds like the API, the API system, the Swiss system handles this pretty well. Like they, they put a lot of emphasis on SIV yeah. and you know, yeah. like, like SIV in the States is totally elective and you have to really chase it. It's not part of mm. any, it's not part of any of the, any of the ratings we get. And, and in fact, you know, in a sense, Ushba looks at it negatively, like it's a it's a potential yeah. way to get hurt, and so they don't push yeah. it. And it's just the total opposite of what we need. <clears throat> excuse me, what we need to be doing. I, exactly. I believe. I, I believe. I completely agree with that completely, Gavin. Because uh, this is how I saw it coming fresh from this uh, well extreme fighter fighter world, which was my normal world, to that. Because um, I think it's even more important in a, a non-professional world where you do not fly every day train every day and be current every day to go i don't know to combat or something like this mm. and um and i have so many examples i mean especially in germany i don't know how in states people are always talking about the glider classification so you say what do you fly at this or what is that is a high b a low b a mid b and then you fly the glider say what's the difference between that and in the beginning um I don't know. I, I wouldn't classify it like this. I did, I, I did a lot of motorbiking too. So after the air, I even went two or three years to the racetrack for fun and stuff like this. If you in the motorbike world, which is also a dangerous world, nobody is classifying the motorbikes and would make the bike responsible, right? Sure. Everybody can buy a 200 horsepower motorbike and then the approach is more well, uh, train it, be, be careful and handle it. And nobody, that is my example for gliders, when I always see that training, you know, all this passive safety, let it fly, hands up, let it fly. Now imagine you're on the motorbike and uh, your knee is on the ground and your front wheel starts drifting. Nobody would tell you, take the hands off the handlebar and let it recover, right? Mm -hmm. That's insane. <laughs> so, so stuff like this, it would be the opposite. You, you have to know what the line is and then what you do when it happens and basically um, the training in especially in the 90s was way too much focused in germany on let the glider do the job mm. and uh, i think that has a bigger implication because if you learn it like this especially if you're somebody who you might be just a normal person not the most talented or whatever it gives you the wrong feedback because the gliders were designed to more or less dampen out all your inputs so how will you get the feedback of your own actions if the glider is not translating this to a motion a movement or a reaction i mean i i saw people taking off in greifenburg on training with an a glider and you they launch the glider they start running like uh, like a sprinter moving arms up and down up and down you look at the glider on top he does the job he just ignores the input of the pilot and takes right. him in the air right so so my approach is more, why not build a glider who doesn't let you take off if you do that, right? If you do that, you should not be able to fly or stall or whatever. So you never get the feedback that you do something wrong. Mm. And um, Dumbing it down too much. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And this, this, this was the training. Like, same with the SIVs you said in these days, I was expecting something like this in, the, uh, in my training, like the Swiss do too, I think. And now they do it. But definitely not in the 90s. And I said, hey, can I fly a stall? And I would say, yeah, stall? Are you crazy? Um, not even a stall. I mean, I was flying. I said, well, it's a glider. I'm vulnerable. Might be weather coming up. How do I get down? It's not an airplane where I can just push the stick forward and this 
plane goes down, put the speed brakes out and land. Um, the only thing they taught were the um, the biggest, but why not teaching me this spiral? Because this is the, the most effective way to do it. No, no, no. Are you crazy? That's too dangerous. <laughs> and I think, I think completely the opposite. I need these tools and I need to master it and I need to train and learn it with an instructor who can show me and tell me what I do right and wrong and where it's dangerous before I have to train it myself alone uh, with low hours somewhere because I want to learn it. So and is that why, Stefan, is that why you left the sport? Because you, you, you stopped flying for a dozen years or 15 years or something, right? Yeah. It's like I had some crazy first two years. <laughs> oh. I mean, A of this, I was younger. I expected something different. I had not much time. So uh, um, basically after my training, I immediately decided uh, this is not my peer group. This kind of environment, this is not the, this is this, um, I think jockey named that once ground suck crowd or <laughs> right. others do. Yeah. And that nailed it right to the point. And I was sitting in Bassano on one of the first year's family vacation. So I wanted to fly and I said, Whoa, beautiful day, a little bit wind, so a little bit from the left. And then it's like 20 guys sitting there, uh, only a few girls, uh, everybody shades on. Nobody's saying hi when you come to the takeoff. Everybody's looking really, really cool. <laughs> and every time somebody took off, there were comments like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, like in a, in a crowd of birds. Rah, 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 right. rah. Oh, yeah. shouldn't take off. Oh, that was dangerous. Oh, did you see how it was up? Oh, mom, not with this wind. So is it crazy? And it was going on and on and on, and on like this. And I said, dude, <laughs> are you having fun? Do you really want to do this? <laughs> is it your sport? So, uh, Pretty soon I decided, well, it's not what I found in mountaineering, skiing, or motorbike world. So where's it's more like, hey, nice, where are you from? Let's fly together. What do you think? And make some realistic judgment. And then, well, uh, give the others some respect uh, to make their own decisions. Mm, I mean, sure. I, I have so many of these examples from the beginning. I, I remember, well... Just tell my approach then was it's like, okay, I want to get away from this crowd. So I got this great book from Oliver Gune, uh, Rest in Peace. I met him in my pilot training. He wrote a book like the, the 100 most beautiful flying sites in the Alps or something like this. Mm. I think uh, it's quite now. Mm. And I said, well, let's tick these 100 takeoffs off. Uh, I think I made 30 or 40 in the first two years. And my Approach was only fly once at everything and then move on and go somewhere else and try it. But I, for example, what I just explained in Bassano, uh, I had a happening that was on um, Col Rodella in the Dolomites. Mm -hmm. It was the same. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was in the day of my, when I did my check ride. It was in the neighbor valley and then I just moved on. That was my first own flight. There was a guy, uh, obviously very nervous. It's, it, it was the um, the south take of just in, in front of the gondola there. I think it's very famous now in autumn. Hundreds of people go there. It was crowded. A lot of people there. Again, the same crowd. Crowds are crowd mostly watching, not taking off themselves. Everybody looking cool again. Bit of a strong wind, but quite nice. I mean, doable. You have to uh, be on your reverse launches and stuff like this. And you saw this elderly guy coming there, wants to fly. Uh, Obviously, pretty nervous to see um, nobody really helped him to open the glider. Only one guy got up and like 
30 others just watching, no comments. And then he messed up his takeoff. He twisted out the wrong way. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. so he got dragged to the next bush and tumbled over, but nothing happened. So um, I think I was the only one who jumped off, basically, and uh, helped him. Everybody else comes again. Oh, <laughs> what a what an idiot turned around the wrong way, blah, blah, blah. How could you take off here like this, blah, blah, blah. No, this time, he's like, come mm-hmm. on. <laughs> Uh, so the guy was there and it was shaky and he was sweating and it's like, yes, Hey, come on. Not so bad. Calm down. Do you know what happened? And it's like, I don't know. And I got dragged. Yeah, I turned the wrong way. So, and he was, ah, do it again. So come on, let's sit a minute. Uh, I want to talk. So, and I calmed him down. Then I helped him to do it off and then talked a little bit with him. And I was a beginner, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, at the end he was calm again. And he said, I thank you so much. Appreciate it because well, that was what I needed. And basically, then he took off and he flew away and had a nice flight. So, but again, I I started to have this strong disconnection again with these people who were there that day. It's like I don't want to be like them. It's not my crowd. That's what I meant, basically. Mm, mm. And um, this is why I tried to move away from it. So I flew for myself a bit with a then a bee glider and uh, combined it with family vacations and stuff like this and um, I think the only thing I had was that I didn't have a, a peer group my friends were not flying and I was living in an area where there's no flying sites for I think 800 k's around in northern Germany mm. so then at the end it died basically and just then we moved old. to the Netherlands on an assignment and uh, uh, it just drifted away and I said well that's not what I thought about. But still, reading all these stories about guys like you doing this crazy mountain stuff, and so, well, it must be out there somewhere, but probably not where I have been the last two years. I didn't find it there. Mm. So so back to flying, back to the Air Force, and and and, and that that kept you occupied. Obviously, your kids kept you occupied, and it just, yeah. it just kind of remained in the back of your head. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I never sold the equipment. I still had it. I mean, finally, then after when I started again, finding my old glider in the basement after 15 years, I sold it for 100 bucks <laughs> for, some, for some ground handling. So. And but, what was, uh, I, still, what? I still dreamt of it. And uh, I had a good peer group when I, I did some assignment to the Air Force and finally ended up in Cologne, where I live right now. Um, joining up with some old friends from the Air Force again and I think that's my main peer group uh, like four or five guys here we did all the same you know we're climbing mountain biking uh, skiing ski mountaineering uh, you name it surfing uh, everything the same it's it's like this connection you had from the Air Force which can be really strong Um, and uh, nobody was paragliding or say like this two of them were but stopped too because of different reasons and um, funny, uh, one of my best friends here, Andy, probably listens to that podcast later. Say hi. He's flying for Lufthansa, and uh, he also always tends at paragliding. Hey, man, you have to do a license. Let's do it. And uh, still having this hike and flies, mountaineering stuff in our mind, climbing up, flying down, going light, and all this. And believe it or not, after the financial crisis. Uh, Basically, my company had a hit. I got a sabbatical year uh, and a kind of a job share program was pretty nice. And Andy had time because it was changing fleets. So um, he did his license on paragliding. And that was the initial kick for me 
together we bought the same wing, the Swift one in these days, some light equipment. And uh, Andy and I uh, started hiking flying. And that was my re-entry into the, into the sport again. And that was 2012, yeah. correct? Uh, 2012. Okay. Probably, yeah. And then how can you kind of encapsulate since then, uh, you know, kind of compact it together in terms of where you, you know, how, how have you approached when you came back to it, how did you approach yeah. your training in a different way than when you did it back in the nineties? How did you kind of go from there and to being a comp pilot now? Well, I mean, with all this experience I was talking before, um, I didn't want to go on this side of the sport again. And I was really happy to fly with Andy. And basically that was, we did a little tour de Mont Blanc, no, hiked and fly, but we used huts for that one. And, um, flew Barsano and just getting back into this. And then he had to work and I had a whole year off. So at that one point I made a decision, um, that, well, why not designate this year now to do some solid training and more or less I put myself on a little roadmap what I wanted to do. Um, for example, I never did an ISA detail then and stuff like this. So mm -hmm. I said, well, um, autodeduct is a little bit difficult in the sport because if you mess it up, you might hurt yourself. So I was looking for training. So the first thing I did basically, obviously I booked an SAD try finally to nail this with stalls and stuff like this. Uh, I looked into uh, a second SAD. Um, this is actually where I met Jockey in Annecy. Mm. It was really great. And I looked around on the internet for XC courses because I just wanted to do a little bit further flight, not only the top, the bottoms. I did before more or less with some small uh, 20, 30 case flights. Uh, and I found only one in Austria in these days. And I went to that one. So the thing is, I, I more or less wrote myself a list of what I wanted to do. It's like more the effort. So first I have to know what is the limits of the glider. So SRVs, handling, aerodynamic envelope of the thing. There's some major differences to airplanes. Like we don't have a rigid wing. Uh, we don't like negative AOAs, uh, uh, collapses, stuff like this, and stalls. Um, and then basically uh, building on these just mechanical flying skills to know your glider. Uh, going to the next step, basically, how to use sermons, uh, environment, etc. And uh, for this, I just went on an XC course. Not that I learned so much there, but I realized very quickly, um, and this is the red line for all this, this is mainly a mental game. Because I think uh, the paraglider in general is the easiest tool you can fly with. It's the only airplane I can say when, when you don't do anything, it flies straight mm -hmm. and doesn't crash you. So you actually don't have to do anything in still air. So, and the skills to manage it as a normal glider in normal conditions, not extreme. Uh, you can learn this. Almost everybody can learn this. It's more about the mental game in your head. Mm -hmm. Am I on top of it? Am I scared? Am I anxious? Uh, and the decision making. And this is what I had to learn. Um, weather. We are so vulnerable on this thing. And this point of no return, once you're up there thousand meters above the ground, there's no way to get down now. So the decision making, that was the main thing. Did your, did your training and did your flying in the Air Force, do you feel like that really impacted how you approached kind of relearning flying? What, you know, were, were there 
lessons you'd learn in, in terms of approach to risk or uh, the mental game yeah, that you you were able to bring across that might be new to those of us who haven't flown airplanes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, when we could talk a little bit about comps, uh, I think in comps even more than in the initial, how I approached the flying. In the initial part, when I restarted, it was more, have it a bit structured. It's mm. like a checklist. You want to know, tick mark an SRV, tick mark there. You want to do a 50K flight. How do you approach this? Get your, uh, the knowledge straight, uh, read about weather and stuff like this and the decision making. And then later, definitely. But in the Air Force, basically, um, I learned there that my own judgment sometimes is wrong. Um, there's a lot of studies and all this. Uh, sure. Uh, you, you might notice the 10,000 hours people say, or intuition versus rational decision making, and all this can be quite complex. But uh, all that say, um, we are all really emotional um, or listening to our feelings. But if you're a brand new beginner, like even a small kid in a dangerous area, you cannot know if it's dangerous or not. So fear is not a good advisor in these scenarios. It always puts you on the very, very safe side. Sometimes, most times, irrational fear. Mm -hmm. I mean, same sometimes with climbing. You, know, you can train this too. If you're safe on the rope, why not try to move? If you fall, you're hanging the rope, that's fine. But still, you feel that fear to do it and the anxiety. And then you have to say, well, everything is safe. Let's try it. Um, so in this uh, paragliding world, I think it's very important what I say, A, I need to find where is the limit where it's getting dangerous, but in a manner to be on the safe side. Because the worst thing in paragliding, I think, is that you scare yourself too much. Uh, if you have a very close call, if you have a gross misjudgment, if you hurt yourself, if you have an accident or something like this, I think that can throw you back a big time. Not mm -hmm. many people can handle that very well because it's very deeply inside of you. You lose trust and stuff like this. But how do you approach that now? And that was my analysis in these times because the whole like official paragliding was always talking about, oh, it's too dangerous. The fern is coming. <laughs> the glider is too big for you. Uh, there's so many examples of this. So how do you approach it? And for example, how I tackled this, I was flying on this Swift, which was a B in this time. Before that, I was flying a, a glider before I stopped. Um, and everybody says, oh, go slowly. You know, you have to change, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think you have to look at the individual. Uh, that is in general true. But then also for yourself, you can see, well, um, some people are really talented. You get people who start the this uh, sport and uh, really really good after two years already and others take 20 years and don't progress much um, so i said i want to fly uh, a competitive glider because i was doing some smaller comps too i did all my homework like uh, my sids ground handling on my small wing and i got to that feeling it's holding me back so i bought a used m4 d wing <laughs> and everybody was saying fuck that's not good. You should fly ceiling first, good distances. And then it's like, well, in general, they were right. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to encourage people here how to go and throw away your egg glider and, and go to a two-liner right away. Um, but the way, and this was the Air Force approach you asked for, um, A, I bought a used one because 
I didn't know myself that I'm able to fly it. I left that question open. It's like, well, everything, I'm not the most untalented. I did fly my whole year. I know I approach things. It's a certified glider, so the glider itself is not a prototype. Everything tells me I should be able to learn and handle that one. Mm -hmm. So I put myself in a safe environment. A, I buy, bought a used one, so if I can't handle it, I could sell it with not a big loss. B, I bought it in the winter time. So I just went up in, in January, February on really still days, basically from ski slopes, and did normal glide flights with that and just played with it. It's like no, left, right, small wing overs, and then do a little spiral. Oh, yeah, yeah, glides different. So um, that's what I mean with a build-up approach. That's an Air Force approach. You build up approach and do it step by step by step. And once I was comfortable with that, I took it to competitions, basically. And then you push it more on bar and stuff like this. And maybe one add to that, it's a very good example, even in my mind. With that background and all this thinking I did, I remember one of these winter days taking off with my Mantra M4 and it was a little bit wind up there, nothing, everything completely safe, just not very still there. So the glider was moving a bit. But in my mind, the mind game was, whoa, it's a D glider, it's a hot ship. And I never flew this before. And I watched myself just like doing all this uh, left, right, and the brakes here a bit, two centimeters here. And after a minute, I'd say, what are you doing? <laughs> And I just forced myself just to keep your hands still and watch the wing and nothing changed. Mm -hmm. And it was only this mind game. It's like there was nothing going on. It's just my mind game telling me I'm on a head trip and I have to control it. I have to control it. And I took a deep breath and that was completely gone. And this is kind of this build-up approach which you have to do. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that was... I. Um, identified this as the biggest problem to get out of this world where I trained and learned mentally and to approach it in a healthy, safe, but uh, rational way how to progress. That's what I try to put on the line. And you, you pretty quickly got wrapped up in kind of the comp scene. I understand you, 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 you felt like, uh, I don't that, that the comp scene just pulled you in. And, and I mean, I think this year, you know, you, you, you've had some great results. You're now 15th in the world, you know, so that's pretty meteor. That's fast. That's a, that's a quick, you know, going from yeah. 2012, you know, basically just learning really anew to, to being 15th in the world. What do you credit that to? What, what, what has been your approach? How have you approached progression and, and training? Yeah. I think that started in that year, 2012. Oh, um, wow. Because, uh, or the, from the mindset where I wanted to go, because um, initially, like I said, it was more the mountaineering side, but now at this time and this whole year off. And uh, what I did in the same year um, when I, well, I did the SRV with this uh, Swift, bought that mantra, and then I did a second SRV because, again, the Air Force approach is now I have a hot ship, I need to do an SRV with that. And this is where I signed up for Jockey Sanderson's uh, SRV in NSC, Escape Adventures. And I think. Jockey, if you listen to that, thank you so much. I think you really, really, without you, I would not have pushed that uh, to the limits, or not to the limits, to the to the place I'm right now. Uh, I, I think you know Jockey. Uh, yeah, I, met, I know Jockey uh, this, well. He's awesome. He's an awesome guy, and he had this opposite attitude, the attitude I always was looking for, looking into uh, the positive side of the sport. Now, it's joy. It's it's not about getting scared and stuff like this. We do that to just 
have fun, enjoy flying with each other. And it was such a great positive motivation for me, for me to meet him there uh, and to do his SIV course with him. Um, so he helped me basically mastering this uh, M4. And we do a little, little bit of XCs uh, in NSC. And then he said, well, I think, was, was it him? I think him, or did I sign up myself? He said, why don't you come to the Sharper Open? It's next week. And I had time and stuff like this. So basically, through him and his courses, I more or less ended up in the Sharper Open in La Rangia. I think by now everybody knows that it's kind of a beginner's comp. No? It's, mm -hmm. it's more or less designed for B gliders, C gliders. They don't want two liners in there. It's like a, a step in competition where the focus is on flying together, learning together, having a beer together in the evening. Jockey does debriefings every evening, talking about the past. It's like an educational comp. And basically, say, hey, why not? Let's do that. And this is basically where it clicked. I. I did really well in this comp. I think uh, I won in my class there. Um, and um, it was such a feeling of, wow, finally the people sitting together, this uh, enthusiasm about the sport. Uh, you fly together, you have problems to solve, and you have a beer together, you talk about it, you do it again to the next day. So I had the feeling that this is the environment. In these days, I didn't plan on going to World Cups or something like this. So it's like, well, this is a training ground. That's what I saw, a training ground where you can progress quickly. And that was it for me. Initially, it was these comps where I think that besides the basic flying skills on handling a glider on SRVs, I learned the most. Because, uh, I mean, everybody, I think, would agree who's doing comps. Uh, in environments like this, you just learn so much in so minimum time. And... Uh, The basic thing, they give you a problem to solve, like a task, and the turn point is there, and it's not a question if you should fly there, if you go for yourself, should I fly there? Oh, no, that's cut right. No, you have to fly there, now solve it. And uh, this kind of environment, I think, made me progress so much. Uh, you try stuff, and sometimes you fail, you bomb out, and say, oh, what did I do wrong now? And then... The Air Force life kicked in again because I found so many things parallels again uh, from my Air Force life. This basic stuff they taught you in the beginning. It's like this. Uh, I don't know if you heard this. We've had this seven Ps: uh, proper pre-flight planning prevents his poor performance, <laughs> <laughs> or, or decisiveness was always very important. I mean, a fighter you go four and not so low level somewhere in these days still, it goes really quick everything. So there's no time for hesitation, but you want to make good decisions. And um, what I saw in the comp world too, is like how you deal with frustrations or wrong decisions. Um, like, ah, uh, oh, damn it, I should have gone left. I missed that. Why didn't I stay? It's only really bad thinking and this is what you learn in fast jets really well was a mistake don't think about it look ahead the more you think about it the more you're behind your airplane and but it's happening in front of you you cannot change it and this acceptance of the things you cannot change to just let it go and not get emotionally involved and just deal with the situation right now um, this i found in paragliding comes the same too so many times after landing people say oh i should have done this should have done Uh, that's fine maybe for debrief, but a lot of people in the air get quite emotional by that. And then uh, 
miss out to assess the situation in front of you. Mm. Mm. Um, Get too wrapped up in what or, just happened instead of what's just ahead. Exactly. It's like, um, I mean, in hindsight, I thought a lot about my what was normal life for me, my squadron life and stuff like this, how you deal. I mean, you fly with your buddies in a squadron. Not everybody's your best friend, but most of them. Uh, it's intense. It's, uh, and your life depends on each other and everything. And it's not always like, uh, say it like this, it's, it's so intense. You don't have the time to be always nice. No, debriefing is very straightforward. And this is true. And you have to be able to disconnect emotionally. Even if you're angry at yourself or maybe angry at your body because you did something who endangered you or basically or sacrificed the tactics. Um, and the way you do it in the Air Force, you get call signs. Sometimes that's blue one, two, three in the formation. That's then not the Gavin and Stefan. Uh, so I call you hey, blue two left bar. And in the debriefing, you would do it the same. You depersonalize that stuff. Mm. And I found out from this fighter fighter that helped me a lot because uh sometimes in gaggles it's really tense or in the start cylinders you know that it's really close some people fly too aggressive so i never get angry at somebody never ever uh, my picture is what i see it's just a situation in front of me it's moving objects i always call it some people laugh and so it's not pilots or people well, if I know you, I say, well, that's Kevin. <laughs> Kick me out. <laughs> I seem no, to remember <laughs> almost taking you out of the air in Columbia a year and a half ago. You were very cool about it. I was like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but I think that, that helps a lot. If people have problems with that. It's not only in comms, but flying somewhere. It's not about blaming others or things. It's just like, well, there is an object who's just now crossing my flight path where I want to go. How do I deal with that? I can continue and I crash into it or I have to deviate or something like this. And that, that makes it very unemotional for me. I just react to uh, things that happen in front of me. And again, an Air Force thing is, that's what they teach you in air combat all the time. It's always this assess, predict, maneuver. And that's a constant loop. I mean... Even in the 1v1 dogfight, you, know, you assess, well, okay, his nose up, he's probably below uh, corner velocity, so he cannot go over the top, uh, predict he will have to come down in five seconds to the right uh, maneuver. I pull lead to that, that I intercept him at that point and employ my gun or something like this. Uh, but then you don't stop. So you do that at the moment, you assess, predict, maneuver. You start again, assess, predict, maneuver, assess, predict, maneuver, what's next? And that is so quick that you always get in this loop and this is the same like what you can use in in, in comms that uh, in general this assessment starts with observation that you always scan everything and assess what will happen next then you predict where you want to be or not and then you maneuver that sounds a lot like that sounds a lot like tactics to me and you actually mentioned tactics just just very recently there let's talk about tactics a little bit in comps um Okay. And maybe specific, you know, you won the Colombian Open this year and then did really well the next week in the in the British Open, which is to me, you know, a pretty fast World Cup. There's a lot of talent at the British Open these days. Um, yeah. Tell me about tactics. Yeah. <laughs> well, tactics, it's, it's for me, it's a little bit, uh, I always say that, uh, it's chess in the air. I mean, and probably a lot of people would would say like this or sometimes i even title it from my background as that 
slow motion air combat <laughs> in a two-dimensional world. <laughs> so for me, sometimes it's, I don't know, it's like uh, I can eat my banana on a big glide and, uh, and do that all. And it's like if somebody put it all on pause, I don't have to be on it right away. So, But uh, it gives a lot of time to do that assess predict maneuver. Mm. But the baseline, I think, about all these tactics uh, is this observation and assessment what's happening. It can be simple things. I mean, I had that even in PWCs. I think it was one task in Brazil uh, last year. It's pretty good. I think I even finished fifth. Yeah, that was really cool. We had to have six or seven tasks. I learned a lot during these competitions. I have a, some good and funny examples. Remind me to give you an example of one task where I uh, basically messed up my seven piece. <laughs> <laughs> let, let's let it start there. I'll remind you right now. Let's, let's hear that one. <laughs> well, well it, it's a very good example where a lot of things come together. I mean, the comp was really good for me. Uh, I was doing well. I was like top 10, top 20 at the end. Like I said, uh, I made it to a fifth. Um, and flying every day long and hard tasks. Um, so, um, like I said before, you have to have attention for detail. Uh, this proper pre-flight planning prevents this poor performance and everything. Because as you know yourself, uh, the higher level of competitions uh, are the less mistakes you can make because the one who makes the fewest mistakes in the end uh, probably wins uh, so that nobody makes any mistakes but there's no room for big errors so <laughs> that day it was pretty nice you know, doing really well fine and i'm at takeoff and uh, uh, everybody's getting ready to go and i put my stuff together i have a coffee i'm normally a pretty relaxed and i'm never really uh, excited and suddenly say oh man Where's my cockpit? And I fly a cannibal race. You need, need the cockpit to, otherwise you cannot fly with all the instruments, everything. And suddenly I realized I forgot my cockpit. Ah, yes, schoolboy uh, here. Exactly. <laughs> no, never happens to me. Never ever. I'm a pro. <laughs> right. uh, well, it did. <laughs> ah. Here we go. And uh, now that was a seven proper pre-flight panning. I messed that seriously up. Now, when I look at the watches that were one and a half hours window open, I might be able to make it. So, but now I had to find a car because we, we had to go this long drive with the bus, Pico de Gavallo. I think the bus drive was an hour something already. I was like, wow, that's bad. So I tried to find the meet director and uh, another guy. Uh, not everybody spoke proper English. I don't speak uh, Portuguese. Um, then I found somebody might have a car, a big story, it took forever. Finally, uh, I got somebody with a comp car who would drive me down downtown uh, so I could pick up my uh, my cockpit. So we were racing downtown with this car, gas station, I had to fill it up. He gave me the keys and I said, good luck, go. Uh, went back, we were living outside of the village, even in, in a little ranch we, we hired. Basically. <laughs> found the cockpit, came up again, so... Uh, majority of the field already took off really sweaty i get my stuff together put it on and i remember this moment and this is this air force world again where you have to i think the big picture when i get some lessons learned over here you have to be able to blend stuff out well i really did a big mistake i can be really upset about myself but there's no time for it so really focus do all this and uh at the end i was the second last with claudia claudia bulgakov was with me here to take off and it's exactly the moment where the wind turned on the takeoff. 
<laughs> and on this place, you can take off from uh, three sides. I think we're on the south takeoff, but at one moment, the wind more or less switched to the north. And I looked at my uh, watch, but strapping in, there was like 15 minutes to go. Going to take off at like 10 minutes till the, wind, till the start opens in the air. Mm-hmm. And I was like, still top 10. I wanted to do that. And I said, shit. And then Claudia standing next to me says, no. Nah, Sorry, Stefan, I don't take off here. It's backwind now. So I go over there and I say, Claudia, if you go over there, we never make it to the star. Well, let's go. And then at this moment, just like, okay, what do I need? Wind is in limits. Then you have to have your skill. You know what you handle with your hands or not. There was a big windsock on the left. Little look. There was two birds circling there. The windsock turned a little bit, showing to the center of the thermal. And my assessment was just like, I have a takeoff window now. I go left for 200 meters. My best assumption is that there is a thermal. All signs are pointing for that. I go to the base, and then I might be just in time. Basically, I took off, did exactly like this. Took off, managed the glider, come to the left, go over the windsock. I hit right away a three-meter climb. I made 800 meters, and then basically uh, I was two minutes late at the start, just 200 meters below the lead gap, and went off. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and uh, from this... What I want to say with that is not, hey, look how good I am. No, it's about uh, these things you can transfer. What is so important is you have to be able to, like a beginner's mind, mentally calm down and let everything go and focus on the stuff which is right there and right ahead of you and which is now important in that moment. No matter what happened before, what the weather did to you, what another pilot did to you in a gathering or what did you did yourself like in a bad uh, decision that might still happen uh, you have to live with that and have to let it go and i think you can train that a lot with um, mental training i mean besides my air force background i use i meditate a lot to be honest it's like mm. it's a really cool way to train your mind to let thoughts come and go not get attached to it too much and are you are you meditating like on you know at the start you know before you take off or are you talking about like when you wake up in the morning or do you have any kind of a practice that's specifically tied to flying yeah it's like um it's like a while ago maybe three four years ago i discovered this uh maybe people know this hat space app yeah that speech is great uh, it's like this uh, Andy from England. I think he was a monk uh, somewhere, came back, and his approach was like a more Western approach without the uh, too much spirituality. It's just about the techniques and everything. I use that a lot, and now basically I have a daily routine. I, I more or less meditate every morning. Mm. And if I miss it once in the morning, then I find something in between uh, time to do it. But like I, I think people who meditate a lot would agree it's not only about the meditation itself i think uh, how can i put this uh, meditation maybe it's a tool uh, a frame to train awareness and uh, awareness in everything are you using that uh, awareness and you know kind of meditation are you using that to help you either enter or get out of kind of a flow state when you're flying uh yeah i mean what i discovered when i started meditating is that i found kind of the same feeling this flow awareness and so in almost everything i did in my life that was definitely the fighter part of life it was very intense missions and it's hard to tell how that was but you get in a state like this i found this in like 
climbing um, on the motorbike, on the racetrack and stuff like this. It's it's this typical flow thing when you're just there, things slow down, you have a clear mind and a clear view. And I think meditation, especially in our world, in the, in the paragliding world, is a good tool to to prep you for this moment. That uh, I mean, I know a lot of people who are really excited before a task, for example. You can use that to just let it go. Breath, breathing is a very big uh, center thing, and meditation uses that as, as a main anchor. Um, and awareness, I mean not only aware of uh, the task itself, or the flying itself, it means in the moment. Um, for example, what I try to do, it's, it's a lot of people use it. You have a routine how you prep for the task. I mean, you go to the briefing and you set yourself up. Uh, everybody has different techniques for that. But I like to be in a bubble you know, for myself. You know, I get my stuff out. It's packed always the same. Uh, it's like, again, this Air Force background, have to have habit patterns. Stuff goes to the same. Uh, when you click in, that you... It's, it's simple. It's not that I just have this buckle in my hand. So I really see the buckle. I feel it. I feel when it clicks. You hones you in on on just this moment, and that's the whole way till you take off. The glider spread. You listen to your breath. You feel the wind. You have a quick look. Smile at some people. The glider rises. So you go from step to step to step. I'm not far ahead now on the on the final glide or something like this. I try just to be right here right now enjoying it and that's a really nice feeling and then it basically comes all together at one big thing um, because you go from one moment to the next one um, in a very relaxed and open way and this is the way i use it you know one of the things i we're, we're just finishing up the the book about the the podcast and been talking about this in the last few shows and it's it's basically you know my job's done it's now in the editor's hands at, at xc mag but it was really interesting going back through all the shows where you know the book's based on the first 100 shows kind of pulling out all the best of the best and the 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 folks that are you know really really top pilots especially at the competition end of things but also you know even in things like the x alps and you know intense hike and fly races they yeah. a, a theme of like being cool comes up again and again and by by that i mean you know it's it's the folks that are laughing the most that are the most relaxed that are the most chill it's often you know the the really consistent pilots and now you know there's some young you know french pilots who are just amazing yeah. but you know the the ones that you kind of see consistently in that kind of top 10 top 20 you know almost every time they yeah. don't they 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 seem to be very detached from mistakes like you said i i mean i think one of the most valuable things i've learned in flying was from tom Payne before the 2015 race, we went and visited him in, in, uh, in Zurich and, you know, he, he competed in 2009 and then he supported John Chambers in 2011 and 2013, I believe. And yeah. he, he said, you know, one of the first things he said when we walked in, you know, Hey, what can you teach me? What, Tom, what, what do I need to know about this? Cause I was so freaked out. I was going into this race yeah. for the first time, <laughs> you know, what do yeah. I need to know? And he said, the, the most important thing you guys need to have is, is conflict resolution. You know, conflict's going to come up and you need yeah. to figure out a way to deal with it. So it doesn't take you down as a team. Yeah. And, and we just decided, okay, well, we're going to make mistakes. That's inevitable. Everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. 
mistakes. Yeah. We're going to make a ton of them and let's, let's figure out what it was and drop it. You know, immediately we yeah. just here, here's yeah. the mistake. Let's not make them again. And there's no blame. There's no, there's no tension. There's no anger. Yeah. Let's laugh it off and move on. And so I, I like that when you said that to be detached from mistakes, I haven't had that so much in mind for comps. And of course that makes perfect sense. You know, that it, but you know, these guys that, and gals that are really good, I think one of the reasons they don't get that upset when they bomb out is because everybody bombs out. Even they, I mean, it's just inevitable. <laughs> You're going to make mistakes. And so whatever. <laughs> yeah, it does. exactly. Yeah, because everybody makes mistakes and we have to acknowledge this. It's a bit what we had in training in the beginning of our talks. It's like everybody expects 100% safety and it's not possible. It's, yeah. it's not there. Yeah. You have to just realize that and the same with no matter how good you get everybody will make mistakes even Russ Ogden makes mistakes and he knows that <laughs> <laughs> but you have to learn from them and it's like I mean there's all these lines I think everybody knows it's, if you do not make mistakes mistake is necessary to progress and learn with no mistakes you will always stay at the level you are and you might know some pilots there are few pilots who always blame something else, the weather, the wind, the pilots or something like this. And if you're not able to open up to your own mistakes, you will never change because only a mistake allows you to analyze something and to progress and to make it in something better. Mm. And uh, that's just not maybe another example of the Air Force world. In, in this 20 years plus Air Force flying, I had not a single flight where you didn't debrief and more complex stuff. Sometimes you flew one and a half hours only in the debrief for three to four hours and you sit down, the door is closed and you have your uh, matrix you go through first is always no, any safety calls, blah, to get it out of the way. Uh, what are things blah, every caveats, every radio was good, blah, blah, no excuses. Boom. And now you deconstruct or uh, reconstruct what happened. Right. But with a, with a, with a line and, in our world, a lot of times people think they debrief and think they debriefed when they reconstructed what happened. Ah, I saw you there. Uh, yeah, cool. And then I jumped to that bridge. Fine. And I didn't catch the thermal. I bombed out. Blah, 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 blah. So what's your best learn? Well, I didn't catch the thermal. But the reconstruction is not the debrief. It's the base now to draw the lesson learned. It, it would be like, okay, you reconstruct. The quicker you can do that, the better. And nowadays, with a GPS track, you could do that even on a task with us. We had, like, in the beginning, we have uh, chalks and boards and notes made in the flight, and then you have GPS trackers, you can do that. When you know what happened, it's just uh, a rewind, uh, then you can start to analyze. And then it's more like, okay, uh, did we execute the game plan? Game plan today, you know, transferring it to paragliding. Okay, my game plan was I want to have a a good start right in the front. I want to push the first uh, 30% of the race to get max leading points. Then I want to hang back a bit and stay for the group tail goal. So now you would ask yourself, did I execute the game plan? And I say, oh, I had a shitty start. Uh, and now I didn't really push the first 30. I attacked in the end and pushed there. Did it make so? So you didn't ex execute the game plan. And then you would say, well, did it work or not? It's still good, fine, and it's okay. But the, why didn't you do that? Well, 
uh, I forgot that the main lead points were in the first 30%. I was distracted and my P2 wasn't in the right position. as on it, seven Ps again. So little things. <laughs> and you would st- go through something like this. And then at the end of all this, there must be a lesson learned. And every single flight of my Air Force had at the end now lesson learned. And LL would formulate. So if you would do the same thing tomorrow, would you do the same thing again? Or where would you do something different? Even if it's a little bit, no? get my P-tube straight no? and then push in the first 30%. And I remember exactly there where I left that thermal, but that was on a point of the race where I didn't want to do that because I wanted to hang with the guys. And then you have a debriefing going and you can use that. So the mistakes are very, very important. So you should embrace your mistakes. It's, it's They are your friends. So uh, a flight without any mistake is kind of a sad thing because you don't learn anything. <laughs> you see it like this. So it doesn't have to be a catastrophic mistake, but especially in comps. And this is the difference between doing it joyful or getting angry or frustrated. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I remember, I think it was two years ago in Argea German Open. I was really good at one task. And I was it Mark Wenzauer and Johannes, Johannes Baumgarten. They were pushing like hell on this rich full bar speed. And I tried to stick with them and fine and they're going and going now look at my instrument and say hey guys we have to go left at one point we have to leave it because the next turn point is like 15 k's to the north of us and we're going east <laughs> and they were such in you know, a like racing each other that at one point i just like no seal <laughs> and i peeled off and i was alone i had to cross this whole thing and they bombed out and in the end they said well we just forgot about it <laughs> because they were just having fun <laughs> they really missed it <laughs> but but then at that moment i said yeah great i did a good decision and i was now uh, like at the front edge little groups now split it up and transitioning over and then um for this analysis, what I just said, and then I saw this these two birds circling at the end of the canyon. I was not the highest anymore, and the sun was in there, so I was like, ah, I should go there because this is a trigger point. If I catch that thermal, I, I can win that task. So I go for that, and then I suddenly realize the rising terrain. I push. I still had options going left or right. I was alone. Nobody else with me. I cannot reach these two birds. They're climbing out above me, and I basically I land at the end of this rugged canyon there somewhere in Algeria. And it's like, fuck. <laughs> I just went there finding out, well, this is not really a path out. And uh, basically, I packed up my stuff, hiked two hours till the next street. Jessica was picking me up there with the car, and I was scratched all over. My T-shirt was ripped in it because it was just in the middle of nowhere. But... I was just sitting down. I remember when I was landed, it was so beautiful because it was quiet and this fresh bushes, the, the smell of them. And and I just laughed at myself. <laughs> like from zero to zero in like two minutes, right? It was a huge mistake, huge mistake. I just could hung back, waited for Pepe and the other guys, join up with these guys oh, how many and times then find that thing. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> this yeah. is a lesson we have and to learn many a- times. <laughs> man it's like it was still like 20 30 k's to go there's there was no rush or something like this but i'm sitting there and and i remember then this is what you can train out that's what i wanted to say it's like i could be there so damn it what did i do man that's just stupid so instead of no it just happened so you sit down and then you just analyze it for a moment very good decision to leave the ridge mark and johannes completely wrong stuff like this Mm -hmm. everything's fine 
here's the critical point. So why did you do that? So the next time, and I visualized this, I rewind the whole tape, see myself at the same position where I took the decision to go for this spot with the two birds. It's like, no, don't go bar, go off bar, get max side, wait till the others come, you have an advantage then, and then basically join that gaggle and uh, fly together. And then I let it go, because once you have your lesson learned, it's no sense in drooling it again and again and again. And <laughs> it, it was quite funny because then I remember I had to wait for Jessica quite a long time on this uh, deserted road. And that was like just a, a wasp, like uh, fighting with an ant. And I, I remember me sitting like 10 minutes on this road watching them. And this is what I mean with awareness. It's just try to be the moment. And this big mistake, well, threw me back in the comp, but it gave me a memory of life. I will never forget this day. Mm. The smell, I will never forget this hike and this magic moment of this insect here that Jessica finally comes and picks me up and we, we find something to eat and drive home. <laughs> so life is good. Life is life good. is really good. Yeah. I can't change it. And it's it's more or less it's more for me, it's more funny, but it was a good lesson learned in comp flying, uh, when to risk and when not. Sure. This risk to award is always uh, a big thing. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. I think there's there's huge crossovers there to just recreational XE flying as well. I mean, you, you really do have to you, that you're, that's a constant analysis, and and you know you got to get it right or you end up on the deck. And but, yeah. but when you end up on yeah. the deck, that's okay too. Uh, Stefan, I want to be mindful of your time, and I also just heard my little one waking up, so it's about to get really loud. So oh. we'll we'll uh, we'll wrap this up in a sense, but. I know you're doing or you have done uh, some guiding and some bivy stuff and cool adventures with jockey and uh, all yeah. over the world. What what um, what's a risk in your students and the people that you're guiding? What's a risk that you wish students would take and more of and a risk that you wish they wouldn't take more of? Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean. If you do your homework, I mean, from a baseline of, I always say this, you have to be humble in our sport, like with, I think, every adventure sport, mm. which is remote, same like climbing or something like that, because we don't have a, a net below us or something, so the, uh, the outcome of huge mistakes can be fatal. So you have to be humble. And uh, whenever you have a feeling, and everybody's different, kind of uh, i'm fighting nature i conquer it uh, sometimes movies suggest stuff like this you're always 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 the weakest link hmm. so out of this position of humbleness of being nothing being smaller than an ant playing intelligently with your knowledge and your skills you can progress a lot it doesn't mean you have to be uh, anxious or something like this but never never forget that you are the weakest link in whatever you do and if you build on that, then be also self-confident enough to uh, push your limits in a safe way. In pushing your limits, I don't mean well, I go full bar now and I have three collapses in one minute. So I have to be, I have to push my, not that type of limits. But uh, we all reach plateaus. So in, in controlled environment, the story what I did with my uh, M4 in these days, try to push your limits or with a good SRV instructor, try to push your rhythms or with like, courses we do with jockey stuff like this. If you're not really sure, join a group, 
go on an XC course. We even did a Bibi course in beer uh, two years ago uh, and explored with people who A, can teach you something and B, you have the mind, same mindset with you. Hmm. So, uh, good advice. Be honest to yourself. That's the main thing. Um, this honesty every day. Uh, am I fit for it? Am I fit today for it? Am I on my wing or not? And don't push yourself mentally in a corner uh, where you don't belong. How important you're, you're a super fit guy. How important do you think fitness is to flying well? And, and how, how did, how do those relate? Do you, do you stay really fit because of flying or is that just who you are? Mm, I like sports. I cycle every day right now. I'm not time. <laughs> but uh, I think um, the type of flying you're doing, fitness is very important. It's like you, you know that. I mean, if you have to hike for hours, days or stuff like this, uh, it's a complete different environment like in a competition environment. Um, I think in normal flying, um, it's like in life too. The mental fitness is the main thing. And our, I think the world we are living in, the Western world, we stress the physical fitness way more than the mental fitness. It's not part of our life or society. Maybe it's way much more in the Asian or in the Eastern cultures. Um, the change is a little bit. You know, this is this meditation or is my mind fit for that, what I'm doing? Can I work on that? I think this mental fitness um, gives you a big advantage in XC flying, in comp flying and stuff like this. You have to be able, I always say, to enjoy and regenerate in flight. I don't get tired when I'm flying. I Even if I have a bad night and shitty day at the moment I fly, I have the feeling I can regenerate. I have a comfortable harness, I'm in the air, I feel great, uh, I look around. The longer comp is, the better I get because... Uh, the mental state is different there. If you don't manage your mental fitness, you will drain. You only have a certain amount of attention bucket, I always uh, say, and every little bit you drain it, you drain it, you drain it. If your gear is not fit, you drain it at takeoff because your uh, reserve is not nicely fitted. Uh, you drain it in the start gaggle already because you're not uh, comfortable flying close to others. Uh, you drain it in the mid-time because you... Uh, the turbulence, your skills are not up to date. And when it's empty, you're tired and you do more mistakes. So for me, I think the mental fitness part is a very underestimated uh, uh, value or, or position in, in paragliding. For me, that's very important. Mm. Last question. How has flying, and put your Air Force into this too, and so all the flying you've done, how has flying changed your life? <laughs> well um it was always a part of my life and um that's a complex question because well say it like this from a young guy just coming from school dreaming of being a pilot uh, you have the doubts and everything uh, so oh they only take like uh, a few of ten thousand who want to do that but you never make this they're all superheroes and stuff like this this experience uh, what the effort showed me uh, to show me what capabilities are in myself, which I never thought I would find there, um, was a big point in how I see myself in life. What I do, 
in the same time, not like in overconfidence. That's the complete different way. It also showed me the uh, this weak side, this humbleness and stuff like this. So, so you have to work hard, you can achieve something, but with the right attitude. And this, I think for myself, gave me a feeling that I can deal with life in any uh, way it comes to me. This uh, this basic relaxed confidence that I can handle things and stressful stuff. That's the one thing. Hmm. And then when I, I always say I rediscovered it in paragliding because I do not find this in the civilian flying. I do that. It's a completely different world. But in paragliding, the same. Um, it's that feeling of you know, freedom. Finally, it's one of the few things in our society uh, which are left over where you're self-reliable, self and nobody's telling you what to do, and no rules and regs. It's you and only you who doesn't make the decisions, and you and only you can be blamed for it. There's nothing else to blame. And this is kind of a constant recalibration of who you are as a person uh, and a constant recalibration on how you should see yourself. Because I think modern society doesn't give us this anymore. Everybody's great. Everybody has a cool job, uh, money here and stuff like this. And people start to believe that till the point where you really get dragged out of this environment. Maybe your job, maybe your, the way you live and so on. And who are you? And so flying made me, I think, deeply philosophical about that no? mm. where am i is it really me or not what do i want what is important what is not important this feeling of just being a little nothing in a big kind of environment nature universe whatever and giving me a very very solid and deep gratitude for this life and uh, this this few years i have on this planet so it's I think it's the whole baseline of how I see my life and how I go through it is more or less shaped by, by flying. Beautiful. Yeah. Stefan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I can't wait for us to fly again, my man. Uh, that'd be, yeah. be so fun and give Jessica a huge hug for me and you guys be safe, be healthy and see a cloud base here sometime. Yeah. Hopefully soon. Take care, Gavin. See you out there. We'll come on a little closer, let me see your face. Yeah, come on a little closer. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I 
for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show. I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support And we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.